I will be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Preston. Two things before we get into the real meat of the sermon. Uh, if you are in one of our life groups, many of our life groups are studying First Peter, and this is a passage from chapter 2. If you listened to the uh, midweek update, you heard a little bit about this that for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, and that is governing authorities, whether it is the emperor who is supreme or the governors at all levels. Um, I don't know whether you would prefer to call us a democratic republic or a representative republic or what particular technical term. Sorry, it's been too long since I was in government class, and at least I think there's a little bit of debate about exactly how it's determined. A representative democracy is the other phrase. If we are to submit to the governing authorities, the governing authorities in our situation ask us to vote. They do not tell us how to vote. They ask us to vote. And it would seem to me that if you have not already done that, that it is... By the way, the first line, for the Lord's sake, that we are called to be people who step into the booth and vote. The way you vote should be less about what's comfortable and convenient for you and what is good for the whole. And let's just be sure and say, that is not easy. But it is what we are called to be. Linda, it is a joy to see you here today. I want to make um, you aware that Sharon has already passed this out to some of our children. If you uh, don't have your child or grandchild here and would like an extra copy, this is called 30 Days of Thankfulness. And every day of the month, starting on, today is the first. And of course, Thanksgiving would be somewhere down here. But there's actually thankful days after Thanksgiving. Somebody say... Hallelujah, and uh, I think you'll be blessed by this, your children, and you'll be blessed by this. If she runs out of copies before the day is done, she can email you one, so I just wanted to point you in that direction. The Bible is full of some crazy things. Somebody say amen. And it just seems that uh, the more we dig into it, we have these beautiful stories of redemption, and then every once in a while we just run into uh, actually, Scott McKnight, one of my favorite authors, calls it a blue parakeet. 
he lives in Chicago, and he has a backyard full of birds, but none of them are blue parakeets. And one day, a blue parakeet flew into his backyard, and he said, you know, that gets your attention. And every once in a while, every once in a while, maybe fairly often, if you read with diligence, if you find a blue parakeet, you find something crazy. I, I was given a, a, uh, a, a encouragement card by a ladies' Bible study. All well-intentioned. By the way, very spiritual. They spend as much time prayer as, as anybody I knew handed to me and, and said, we, we believe this verse is for you. And it said, the Lord your God is among you. The Lord your God is with you to protect you and deliver to deliver your enemies to you. And, and man, you know, they prayed over me. They laid hands on me. It was a blessing. I was just kind of curious, though, because it had a citation, Leviticus. Uh, sorry, Deuteronomy. And, and Deuteronomy is an interesting place for that to come from. And so I, 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 just, I wanted to see the larger context, this beautiful story of how God is with his people. And now he is going to, and if you know the Deuteronomy story, they're getting ready to go into the front, how he's going to drive out peoples in front of them and all those kinds of things. Now, I want you to know in... As we begin to read this passage, I'm going to make absolutely no commentary on it, okay? When you're encamped against your enemies, so this is an immediate military encampment, skipping down to verse 12, you shall have a designated area outside the camp to which you shall go. With your utensils, you'll have a trowel. When you relieve yourself outside, you shall dig a hole with it and then cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God travels along your camp to save you and to hand you over to your enemies. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything, or should I say step into anything, indecent among you and turn away from you. Is that crazy or is it just me? And yet, what's interesting is what God said is something about your holiness is something that modern armies learned somewhere about the Civil War. If you don't take care of this, the war will not go well. And God made it a point of holiness. At some level, it was a little bit of a crazy thing that God let David and Solomon build a temple. Because there was a tabernacle, and that tabernacle connected them to those times in the desert when they roamed around, there's a certain extent to which replacing the tabernacle with the temple was almost a first step towards the idolatry that they got involved in because it pointed them to some sort of goal like we have to do this earthly thing that's much more tangible. Make no mistake, Solomon's temple was a profound archaeological statement. And it was almost as if you could substitute profound archaeological human-made things for the power of a tabernacle with an altar with unhewn stones. But when David made the preparations and Solomon executed, and we have it recorded in the text, and again, nobody intended anything other than the very best, but it turns out to be a little bit of a crazy thing. In the midst of the temple are two very important things. The first of all was the outer court was surrounded by a place called the holy place. And into this holy place, only priests could go and they would have to be cleaned properly and have the right kind of garb on. 
They had to be the right people, and not my. I didn't make up the rules. Please don't blame me. These were only males that could enter into that place. But what you know is, because you're good Bible students, you know that on the other side of a curtain, the curtain, by the way, that when Jesus rose from the dead, or excuse me, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil, the curtain, was torn from top to bottom. That curtain on the other side of that was a place called, say it for me, Holy of Holies. That is a way you say, one thing's holy, and this is even holier-esque. Yes? Again, a process of great cleansing. Sacrifices made on the part of the priest who was to go in there. But what you need to know about most of that, that purification ritual that had to take place, really had very little to do with. There was a confession of sin, and they were laid on the animal that was sacrificed for the priest. But it didn't really have a whole lot to do with where his heart was and how his life was lived. Instead, these were rituals to set him apart. Rituals to say the things that surround God are very, very special. Special to be near the, the, the temple at all. Extra special to go into that inner court. Extra super special to go into the holies of holies. We're told once a year. Apparently, there developed a tradition where the person who went in there, you tied a rope to them because if they weren't acceptable, they might just die right there. And because nobody could go in there and nobody wanted to die in that process, you had to pull them out with a rope. I kind of think that they hadn't read their Bibles well because what we know is that Daniel, uh, not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his friends were tied up with ropes when they were thrown into the fire. And God's holiness rescued them, including burning the ropes off them that they were bound with. So I'm not sure. We don't have any record of anybody being dragged out by the rope, but I'm not sure that it would have worked because if God took them, I'm also not sure that there would have been much left. Left. It was a crazy kind of place. But there's, this is not the only place that holy things happen or where things are called holy. You have read the story where Moses encounters the self-described I am. I am that I am. In that bush that was on fire but wasn't being burned up. If you have access to the movie The Prince of Egypt, I find that to be one of the most powerful kind of representations of what's going on there in several different ways. I realize it's animated. I think sometimes with God's stuff, Animation is more effective about actually telling us what happened than trying to do some sort of live-action special effect. It was at this place that Moses was told to take off his shoes because it was holy ground. It doesn't appear to be some place that he was supposed to go back to on a regular basis. It doesn't appear that somehow or another Moses was supposed to go through some sort of purification ritual to get there. It doesn't appear several things, but God said you're on holy ground. And I think that we have to determine that holiness is about the proximity of the Lord. If God is there, it's holy. I told him to take off his shoes. I have a little tradition when I preach at camps now 
that when I preach at camps, I take off my shoes because I, I kind of have a sense that preaching at camp is an is a extraordinary holy place because you have an opportunity with young people's hearts and the evidence and the, and the uh, surveys, the, the data points back to camps being a very significant place where children's lives are changed and that you would be chosen to speak is holy ground. And so I not only preach in my shorts, which you are never granted the blessing of, but I preach barefoot. And it's his story that defines that. But you might ask, why would we talk about being holy or holiness in the midst of a series about the church that we're calling the fellowship? Because I think in a big way, you and I have this idea that holiness is just a very personal thing. In fact, in our society, we have developed the theology that says that my holiness is my business and don't you ask me about it. It doesn't matter that the Bible calls us to confession one to another. It doesn't matter that the Bible says be a repentant people and repentance will always kind of call us to to make a proclamation of repentance. Instead, we want to say that my holiness, my holiness, my holiness is my business. Don't mess with it. But I think that is contradictory to what the New Testament and in reality in concert with the Old Testament says about holiness. I'm going to read from 1 Peter, a passage that, again, if you're in life group, you may have heard about and talked about some. Come to him, the living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, and I love the, the connection here, right? Jesus is the living stone, and we are like him. We are also living stones. He is the living stone. We are... The living stones. Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And skipping down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. God's own people in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. These are powerful words. They're words that we put on bumper stickers, right? They're words that we kind of make monikers of of what we're about and what we're doing. They are words that in one sentence make us think, wow, look what God wants to do with me and then in the next sentence it makes us kind of oh wait a minute not sure I'm good enough not sure I'm holy enough because the holiness business is just about me if you go all the way back to the passage that Preston read you are the light of the world as with most of the time that you is used in the New Testament it is not a singular you all So Jesus speaks to the entire crowd, but I think in a very particular sense, Matthew records it for us and preserves it for us, and it's passed on to us to speak to his church. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And Jesus says, I didn't come 
to replace the law or to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And then those incredible words. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. And what I can promise you is that if you want to think about your own individual, personal, little world, you will never, because you don't have concepts about separation like the Pharisees had about separation. You'll never get there. But if instead of thinking about my little small world and this idea of this moral sort of sense of I'm going to be different than everything else, I'm going to separate myself, I'm going to keep myself away from, as opposed to that, if we think of holiness as how close we can get to God, then maybe, maybe we can be a little more like what God wants us to be than the Pharisees. Notice that these words from 1 Peter aren't if words. If you get yourself all put together and everything's aligned exactly right, and particularly the way we think about it, if I get all my stuff in an order and I get it all right, then I can be. The proclamation is that you... The new Israel, the church of God, are his royal priesthood. You are his holy people. Set apart. Set apart. So that you can attest to his marvelous, wonderful deeds and his light in a world of darkness. Powerful stuff. It all kind of flows out of that verse from Leviticus. Yes, we're preaching out of Leviticus today. Leviticus 19.2, where it says, Speak to all the congregation of the people. So again, this is not really about you getting your little life all in line with things, but instead speak to the whole congregation of people and say to them, You, as God's people, will be holy. For I, the Lord, your God, say it with me, please, am holy. Now, maybe our biggest problem, and I've already alluded to this, is having more of a bit, our biggest problem is that we don't have as full a biblical view of holiness as we should, because I think most of us think about it in this way. Holiness equals moral purity. We think that we've got to get all the dots and all the the crossing the T's of every single moral issue, and, and again, be sure and say, in our personal life aligned with what God wants, what pleases God for us to be holy. And there is something to think about there. We'll come back to in a minute. But when we read the Bible, what the Bible talks about more than just moral purity is that holiness is greater than, greater than moral purity. Should the idea of moral purity flow out of our desire to be holy? Yes. But should it be the ultimate goal? I would actually say no. Largely because you've taken your arrow and you've aimed it too low. You see, to be holy is about the idea of being fully devoted to God. Being holy is about being fully devoted to God. God said to Moses, 
Well, take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And I want to be sure and say, didn't have anything to do with that dirt being different. By the way, the plant was a little different because God did something with it. But what really happened was an encounter. To a certain extent, we have to say almost a face-to-face encounter with God in which God was calling Moses, whose life had taken a very distinct track, and he called him to say, no, 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 no. I want you to go in an entirely different direction. You have adapted a life of hiding, and I am going to put you as my number one spokesperson on the number one stage in the world. You're going to have to be completely mine. Now, Moses argued. Moses fought. Moses wasn't sure he wanted to do those kinds of things. And I think we can understand that if we're honest with ourselves. But it wasn't about Moses getting his life all lined up and getting all the T's crossed. It was about Moses deciding that he wanted to be all that God wanted him to be. And that Moses being all that God wanted him to be was going to lead to a nation being everything that God desired for them to be. Did they accomplish that goal? No. Largely because people couldn't. God needed to. But if we understand the idea of being fully devoted to God, I want to say specifically that it is always going to be less about avoiding the don'ts and more about embracing the do's. I want you to take that one in. I'm going to say it again. Being fully devoted to God and being fully devoted to God is about being? Being fully devoted to God is about being? Holy. Is less about avoiding the don'ts and more about embracing the do's. I distinctly remember in my life when this truth came and hit me right in the heart. I was in a youth group Bible study. I was in eighth grade, and we were studying 1 John. I probably have told this story to you before because it's a big part of my witness. Because if you're in the light and you walk in the light, then God is with you and, and, and your life is what it's supposed to be. And I said, but I don't know that I'm always in the light. And, and the person leading the Bible study, his name is Daryl Green, said, no, 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 no. This isn't about getting everything straightened out. It's about making the point of your compass God, walking in the light, staying on the path. The path I want to follow is God's path. And then he said, and doing what God wants you to do is way more about doing what he calls us to as opposed to avoiding the things that he says to avoid. Notice Jesus What is the greatest command? And they said it really well for you on YouTube. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of you. And love your neighbor as yourself. It is interesting to me that none of these are included in the ten. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't worship any idols. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. I think I messed one out. 
but I'm pretty close, right? Lots of don'ts. But what it leads with is, and sometimes we don't count this as the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I want you to know who I am above all other things. I want you to hold me up and keep me sacred. I want nothing to take my place in this world. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Tell me. I'm going to tell myself. Of the things that kind of entangle me in things that aren't pleasing to God in my own life, what I know is it is if I loved God a little more, they would be less part of my life. I invite you to ask that same question. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he encompasses everything that the Ten Commandments say about not murdering, not stealing, not committing adultery. If we love our neighbor, if we love the other, at least as much as we love ourselves and possibly even lifting them up as greater, then we don't struggle with those kinds of things. Somebody say, amen. When we look at Paul's lists of things that we need to avoid, we're all very quick to point out, oh yeah, yeah, he says sexual immorality, immorality is bad. He said drunkenness is bad. He says all these things that are real easy for us to kind of point at and say, look at all the things those people are doing wrong. And yet in those same lists, before you're done with them, is things like greed. Things like loose talking. Because what he knows is, is that in the audience that he's speaking to, there are people who come from a very Greek. And you can do some research on the Greek Roman lifestyle, the Hellenistic lifestyle, and make no mistake, it was saturated in sexuality. And some of these people that had come straight out of going to, when they worshiped God, that included having sex with a prostitute. It was about how many prostitutes at the temple you could have sex with. It was about your life. To show how powerful and great you were was also equated with how many different people you could dominate sexually. Your relationship with your wife for procreation was its own little thing over here on the side because there was this other thing that said, I am stronger, more powerful, and I honor the gods of power and might by participating in sexuality. Any kind of sexuality that I want to. And these people are sitting at a table having the Lord's Supper with good Jews who've never eaten the wrong thing, have never gone to the wrong places, and have never hung around with people who would do anything like that. Why in the world are they at this table? Because they found Jesus Christ. But see, when you flip the card on the Jews, see, they have done so much work at being separate from all those things that it's just so easy for those of us in the church to kind of point at and say, what's wrong with those people? Preacher, why don't you preach more on what's wrong with those people? Is that the Jews struggled with things like greed and pride and arrogance. 
legalism. None of us would struggle with any of those kinds of things. But instead, what God says, you know what? If you want to make your life closer to me, if you will think about how to love me and how to love others more. Powerful passage from Ephesians chapter 4. I beg you. And who's the you? I beg y'all. All of you who've come to know Christ to lead a life worthy of the calling you have received. A calling to be a royal priesthood. A holy nation. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what? When Paul calls me to live a life worthy of the calling, I'm way more comfortable with him saying, and be sure that you call out sexual immorality. Be sure that you call out homosexuality. Be sure that you call out transgender issues. Be sure that you call out those people that are hung up on drugs and can't seem to get their life straight without some sort of pill or some sort of drink or something to smoke. Because those are the things that we can kind of sit smugly and say, yep, yep, yep. But instead... If you want to be holy as I am holy, if you want to live a life worthy of the calling, humbleness and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. And then this one, that at least for me is as much an accusation as anything. And to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace among all God's people. I want to be holy. To be a holy nation, very quickly, three things. First, this is an again because I've said this before. It must be more about we than just me. That is to say that we can't make this an individual struggle. First of all, if the Holy Spirit works anyway, He works inside the body of Christ. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is what's going to help us be transformed into what God wants us to be. And so if we're not in relationship with each other, how in the world are we going to become more of what God wants us to be? The idea of confession and repentance is powered by the idea that I have Christian brothers and sisters that are going to walk with me and hold me up and help me get down the road. Besides that, God's way more concerned with the image that our body presents, that is to say, our congregation, that we as a part of Christian kingdom throughout the world make than just one single one of us. Secondly, to be a holy nation, we've got to spend time discerning love God with all we are. We've got to figure out who God is. And you can't do that by reading everything. You need to spend time in the Gospels reading about Jesus because that tells us who God is more than anything. 
But you also need to spend time in the Old Testament reading those stories about what God did among his people because we need to learn who God is if we're going to love God with our all. Finally, number three, finding more ways to better love. Forgive me, brother, didn't have any more room. Our brothers and our sisters. Because if we can find more ways to invest in ourselves in lifting others up and blessing others, I can promise you that we'll have less and less time to be distracted by the things that want to pull us in another direction. The things that God over and over again has said, that's going to hurt you, that's going to hurt your witness, and that's going to separate you, get you further from me. Finding more ways and better ways to love your brothers and sisters. The invitation today is to lead a life as a community. As a community that is worthy of the calling you have received. Coming out of baptism having been filled by the Holy Spirit, having put our brokenness away through the blood of Christ, and joining in His fellowship, God says, you are a holy nation. You are mine. If you need to take any step in that direction and we can help you, publicly this is the time to come if you are online the number is there and we will respond to that message but let's stand and by the way let's not let a single one of us not think how can I be closer more devoted to God let's stand and let's sing be like the blessed redeemer